All right, the lefty specialists are back. I'm John. That is the old theme music because we all have concluded the A-Rod Chronicles. Thank you all for listening to that. I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as James and I enjoyed doing it. Uh, and we mentioned that we might return to it at some later point. But for now, that series has concluded. So we are back to the old version of the Lefty Specialists. Although, as you may have noticed, James is not here with me today. Um, he's on hiatus from the podcast for a short while. Hoping to keep it going um, without him in some form. Luckily for today's episode, I was joined by Evan Drellick, senior writer at The Athletic, who covers the business and labor side of baseball there. Evan is also the author of Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess, which is a great book that I highly encourage you all to pick up if you haven't done so already. That book grew out of a major story Evan broke along with Ken Rosenthal about the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal back in 2019, which I assume you all know very much about. Uh, James and I have actually recorded multiple podcasts about that. Uh, But the book is really a much deeper exploration of the Astros' last decade and how they've built this kind of mini-dynasty, now making the American League's championship series seven years in a row. Although, as I record this intro, they are about to lose Game 7, 11-3 to the Rangers, but... You know, you can't win them all. Uh, The Astros did win the World Series last year, their second since uh, the time the Evans book covers. And they did this all while being kind of a mess of an organization. And what I really think is so great about this book is that it punctures the idea, which has taken hold around the league and around sports since Moneyball, really, that a successful team on the field is the result of a finely tuned, well-oiled front office with genius GMs and executives plotting everything out and making it all work. Evan's book really shows that for as good as Houston has been on the field, the process that led there was a shit show, or as Evan puts it in his title, sports biggest mess. So while he and I do talk about the sign-stealing stuff, that's not really the focus of the book, and our conversation eventually gets deeper than that. I hope you all enjoy it, and thanks to Evan for joining me, and if you like it, let me know other guests you want me to have on in this in this period while James is away, and I'm hoping to have some interesting conversations like the one Evan and I had, so check it out and enjoy. All right, we are here, or rather I am here with Evan Drellick, the author of Winning Fixes Everything. Today, we are recording this on Sunday in the afternoon, it is the... Is, hours, mere hours before game six of the ALCS. The Houston Astros are on the cusp of potentially another World Series appearance. So decided to invite on the man who wrote the book on the Astros and a good friend of myself and the podcast. Evan, welcome to the show. I, I, I have all these flights booked. And I just, you know, at some point you want to can't like just figure it out, whether it's Houston, whether it's <laughs> Dallas, wherever the hell I'm going. I just I want to know at some point. Hi, John. How are you? Good. Good. I'm excited to have you. Um, so, yeah. So are you excited about a potential another Astros trip to the World Series? My honest answer is no, because just for the sake of variety of narrative. Yeah. I'd like to see something a little different at some point, like. Whether with whoever, I, you know, at this point, the only alternative in the American League is obviously the Rangers. But uh, I mean, it, it is interesting. We haven't had a repeat um, that I can think of. Well, 98, 99, right? No, no, 96, 99. No, there hasn't been one since the 70s. I think Yankees Dodgers was the last time we had a repeat of a repeat like the same matchup. matchup in the world, right? Uh, Yankees and, and Braves were 
96. Yeah, that was separated by three years. The yeah, Padres I guess in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's cool in itself, but um, no, I think it. I think usually a little variety can can be interesting. But that said, I I don't think it's a it's a bad outcome. I don't think it's the worst outcome you could possibly imagine. It, it is interesting to see the Astros sustained success. Um, but yeah, no, I was not rooting for a rematch. That that was not my first instinct. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me until recently that this would be a rematch of last. Like I, I, I mostly forgot and blacked out last year's World Series. Um, so I was like, oh yeah, the, the Astros and Phillies, they did it last year. Um, so yes, yeah, so let's talk about your book. Again, Winning Fixes Everything, the subtitle, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. So let's talk about the entry point I think most fans will have to your book, which is the Original reporting you did, along with Ken Rosenthal, to break the trash can banging, sign stealing scandal, which I think to this day is still most people's first thought when they think of anything with the Astros, but especially when they think of this kind of mini dynasty and this run that they've had. And I'm curious if you feel like having read this book now and seen like the decades of reporting you've done that goes of which I mean, the, the scandal is a part of this book. It's an important part, but it's I would say even a small part, arguably. And I'm curious if that's, you know, if you feel that's a fair takeaway from most fans for that to be the big thing. And if you think that's like representative of the book or just kind of a weird thing fans latched on to. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's been what, several months now since I did my full book tour. And so, so I, I, you know, having gone through it, when I say full book tour, I mean, media tour, I was not put on the road, but just, you know, podcast after podcast and and i almost feel now a little liberated to speak a little bit more freely or flippantly at this point yeah go for it um you know it's a little bait and switch i mean that's not the way it was intended but yeah i think people think they're reading a book about the scandal and it is it is but but it is the explanation of how did we get to the scandal yeah i think what you're saying is entirely fair um it it's the management culture and the environment and the years inside of Houston and also in major league baseball more broadly that brought us to this point where you have this massive scandal that people are still writing about. Jeff Passon did a story today on Altuve, you know, it's, it does kind of keep rolling. And, and I imagine that will continue to be the case to some degree, you know, it really had kind of this incredible staying power and you can understand why, but yeah, it, it is not 300 plus pages dissecting every bang on a trash can. It's um, how do you possibly arrive at this point where you have such a successful team otherwise, well, on the field, uh, you know, collapse this way where you have this kind of level of wrongdoing that bothers so many people to the point that, yes, you are still talking about it what is it now, four years after the initial report and six years after the uh, uh, the actual cheating? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of remarkable. Yeah, and I think the, the book combined with like the report that the league issued when they disciplined the players, it really created, like when I, when the first, when the scandal first broke, I remember being like, you know, obviously I was scandalized as a Yankee fan and I thought, oh, the Yankees were cheated out of a potential World Series appearance. But, you know, then I went to a baseball game and, 2021 i guess it was like the first you know game back from the pandemic it was you know yankees astros and the like the visceral anger at altuve and the astros was so strong and i remember being like even confused like james and i recorded a whole podcast about like why does everybody hate the astros so much like is this such a big is this scandal really worse than like you know the yankees and red sox were caught doing similar 
technological malfeasances earlier and everyone seems to have kind of forgotten that but i think a lot of it comes down to like the anger at the players because the players weren't punished and so i i'm curious as a fan who's protective of player rights and labor obviously there are specific reasons why the league couldn't punish the players and some fans appreciate that and some don't but do you feel like the players were in some ways made the fall guy which is weird to say because they weren't punished at all but they exist in this like state of perpetual guilt. Whereas like, you know, AJ Hinch, he got a job back. Like, you know, Alex Cora was gone for a very short period in the end. Like, you know, they, they, and whereas like the players, like, you know, I don't know if this will impact Altuve's like hall of fame candidacy, but he's getting booed six years later. And there's, you know, there's arguments that he didn't even participate in the sign stealing. So I'm curious, like to what degree you feel like the players were fairly, you know, punished for what they did. Yeah. There, there, there's, there's a lot to unpack with, with that. There, there's a lot that goes into this line of discussion. One of your early points there, could the commissioner have punished them? He absolutely could have issued suspensions. The question is whether they would have held up. Yeah. And, you know, based on what MLB ends up putting forth, publicly and you if you assume that that same information becomes public and, and is well known in a, in a instance where they do try to punish uh namely luno the gm not passing on the memorandums uh, yeah you know there was there was a good chance that any punishment mlb tried to issue here would have been uh overturned that it, it or you know reduced or totally eliminated, and Manfred did not want to take that chance. Now, interestingly, I think this was just a few, sometime early this season, mid season, you know, a few months ago. Um, he did, Manfred did an interview with Time, and it was the first time that, no pun intended, that that Manfred had had publicly suggested that he he had some regret over not punishing the players in. You can kind of understand that in hindsight that the, the the clamor and the outrage around it has been so loud that yeah, you would almost think that how could you not reconsider right. that or if you could go back and and do it. And what I've always written and I, and I still believe really is the case, it, it, the failure wasn't not punishing in the moment. It was the fact that Manfred never saw how big this problem could grow. Right? Yeah, you know, it, it, he, if he did, he would have put in more deterrence and enforcement to begin with. Uh, but also he would have pushed the players union uh, or otherwise, you know, kind of put in place clear guidelines of if this happens, this is how it will be handled. Cause that's really a key thing. And as I understand, I'm not a labor lawyer, but in labor relations, you, you can't just decide on a whim how you're going to punish something. Yeah. It'll I mean, probably get overturned. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this so, is a big theme that I always hit back on the Substack and in podcasts before is like what, Unions in general, you know, again, I'm also not a labor lawyer. I don't want to speak too freely, but like in a common recurring theme in labor negotiations is like make rules clear and explicit. Like, don't just say when there's a problem, the boss can do whatever he wants. Say like the the punishment for doing X, Y and Z is A, B and C. And then players know and workers know, OK, if we do that, we're in trouble. And I think like the story that comes through in your book, both in this specific example in and, you know, so many like small things that just happen in this organization from top to bottom is a culture where like 
no one really knows what's against the rules. Everyone's kind of like figuring it out as they go. And then, but when you cross some imaginary line, you'll get screamed at or you'll get punished or you'll get, you know, made the fall guy. And I think that was something when, when you see the whole narrative, it's very relatable in a very, even in a non-sports context. Like we all know workplaces like that where the rules are sort of vague and they change from day to day and depending on what mood the boss is in and whether or not Jeff Luno has like had a dentist appointment or whatever, like it seems like that factors into what I'm allowed to do. And it seems like this was just a high profile example of the players running afoul of rules that were never spelled out for them. Yeah, I mean, look, you can make a counter argument that there was a pretty darn clear broad rule that yeah. was, you cannot use electronic equipment to do what the Astros were doing. Um, and, you know, so is it a guarantee that it would have gotten overturned? Certainly everybody I talked to who, who was kind of knowledgeable in this space felt it was, you know, MLB's case would have been uh, pretty rough if, if they if they had tried it. But, you know, the interesting thing is, man, the, the worst thing Manfred deemed could happen would be that he punished and he looks weak because the punishment is overturned. Yeah. In hindsight, it might be that actually the worst thing that could happen is you, you getting pinned with you didn't try. Yeah. Just let them go. And so it, and, and that, you know, it's 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 even one step higher than all right. Maybe you would have just been better off as the commissioner rolling the dice and getting that egg on your face. And maybe that egg on your face might have been less than the egg on your face that you now subsequently have. Um, you know, and then, okay, to the other parts, your, your initial question there about do the players wear it more than management? Yes. I, I don't think there's any question that's the case. I mean, I mean it's, it's kind of unique and isolated to the players on the Astros who remain in on Houston, the Astros, right? Yeah. George Springer is not dealing with this in the same way that Altuve is. And, you know, I've gone on Houston radio, you know, a few different points including one on their local NPR station that was, and it was a segment specifically dedicated to basically, you know, the plight of Jose Altuve. <laughs> and I, I don't subscribe to this. I, I, yes. Is he boot everywhere? Yeah, he is. Uh, is that uh, ruining the perception of him as an excellent star player? I really don't think so. I don't think anybody sitting around in, in any other city going, well, this guy's not good at baseball. And, you know, the Hall of Fame question, maybe, maybe my assessment would be it's possible. Somebody's like, I'm not going to mm-hmm. put him in on the first ballot. I just I, it, I would be surprised if it really materially impacted him. And so the question becomes, what is the material impact right. on Jose Altuve? What, and, and, you know, like. Again, with a little bit of the being flippant, you know, kind of removed from it now a few months from the book and just kind of seeing things unfold further and further. What do you think is going to happen when you have a team wide cheating scheme? This is how it works. Your player, your stars are going to get booed. This might be a reason not to cheat or not to try to cheat. Right. It's, It's a little hard for me to kind of muster up a lot of, oh, poor Jose Alto. Yeah. Well, I think the the counter to that is that I think he became like my understanding is that it's his, you know, some players participated and some didn't because some players didn't like knowing what, you know, people had different approaches or whatever. But the reason Altuve became the face of it, I mean, you say Altuve, you know, George Springer, um, you know, because he's in Toronto, doesn't get quite asked about this. But obviously also somebody like Kyle Tucker, who wasn't even on the team in 2017, like that 
doesn't linger with him. But because Altuve is like the face of the Astros, right? He's this guy who was there when they were terrible. He's there now. He won the MVP. He's got all these records, et cetera. Um, and he was like beloved sort of before this scandal. He was one of the, you know, he's short. So there's all the short kings who, who admire him. He plays this game with this sort of like excitement. Um, and now he's sort of just flipped on that. And I don't know, like you can say, oh, well, if you have a team-wide scandal, people are going to get mad and people are going to blame you. But I don't know that Altuve realized, you know, like a, if we grant, for example, that he maybe didn't participate or was only a passive participant in this in the scheme. Did he think, oh, even though I'm not the ringleader here, I'm going to get the lion's share of the blame because I'm the most famous player on the team. I don't know if that occurred to him. I don't know if, say, like Carlos Correa or somebody like that thought, I might be able to get away with this because I'm like not as famous as Altuve yet or, or something like that. And, and I think that's the part of it that I find a little bit unfair. And I agree, like the material impact is, is marginal and, you know, depending, you know, he's still making all of his money. He's, you know, probably he's he's won two world series he's had a great career but i think it's more the lessons we take from this and apply to other players who might face similar discipline or punishment etc yeah i mean like i don't think they were thinking at all right what would come and i imagine if they they had been they they wouldn't have done it it, yeah um I, i don't know i think i kind of in my weird brain look at this this act of booing which I think is really what it, you know, you, you use the word he's getting blamed. Well, I, I think what we're talking about is simply the fan reaction, right? Yeah. The fan vitriol in these other stadiums. Um, I think anytime you have a cheating scandal like this and there is a star player, it's it's just going to happen. Uh, and, and, and it's a little, you know, I think Astros fans want, there's a convenience to a lot of the, the kind of defenses I hear of, um, Oh, well, you know, we were doing because everybody else is doing right, it. Right, right. Um, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, well, it's just the way it is that if you get caught, yeah, there is going to be kind <laughs> this of- This is a, also just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, and I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't assign that much value to it. Like, yeah, it is the performative ritual of fans. They're going to do this. Yes. Um, certainly, I hope that, that like- on a person, you know, you don't want somebody to be like mentally torn up inside and like crying every night. You, know, you could see an extreme outcome here yeah. where it's really damaging to somebody. Um, but you know, I, beyond that, I, I, I just, it, it just doesn't, the booing doesn't move me that much. It, it really, I really do kind of keep going back to this position of what did you think would happen? Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's like, and again, like he's still making his money. He's still performing incredibly well. I think historically he will be remembered as you know, one of the absolute greatest second baseman of all time. I mean, like, I just, it, it just, I have trouble being too moved by it. And here's the other thing, kind of with your original framing, I don't know that if Manfred had, let's say Manfred had punished them. Um, do you really think people have just forgotten about it at that point? Like, like let's say they yeah. are in games. I mean, one of the, the tricky things here. It would have been interesting had he tried to punish them. Is how do you assign blame for a team wide cheating scandal? Do you punish all the hitters the same? Do you try to read into who used it the most? Do you care about regular playing time? Yeah. If you're only on the team for 20 days, um, you know, and that's, and I think that's part of the reason there is still debate about it is, is it's messy. The whole thing is so messy. Yeah. You know, it's not as simple as A Rod used some PEDs, Barry Bond, whatever. It's yeah. much neater and kind of intellectually easy to deal with than a team-wide cheating scandal. And, you know, there is an anecdote in the book where Altuve is is 
uh, happy they're going back home toward the end of the season. I think it was actually entering the postseason at 17 because he's they're going to have the, the boom, boom, boom. He made a little noise. Right. Um, you know, and so look, even if he wasn't using it, he still stood by. He yeah. still might have enjoyed the results of it, might have even, um, you know, in that tiny way at least, encouraged it. And so, you know, it's just, well, he didn't use it. Does that really absolve blame? AJ Hinch didn't use it. Does that absolve blame? Obviously, right. that's an unfair comparison. But um, it's it's just none of this is neat. And, and I think that's part of why we're still talking about it. Yeah, it doesn't fit the narrative or the, like, standard of individual blame and accountability that like we are so used to framing punishment decisions on right like this was a team-wide organizational decision and again this sort of gets to the larger issues at, at play here which is that it kind of filtered down from the top and it's not like i mean i do think there are a lot of similarities actually to the steroid thing in terms of sure. this sort of like players existing in this in this limbic state of guilt and innocence right where like we don't actually know if a player did steroids but we kind of think he did and we you know, we, 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 we decide they're guilty anyway, because of the evidence seems strong or like, depending on which fan you ask, I think this player did, or I think this player didn't, or I think this player did steal Steins. I think this player didn't. Cause I just like that guy more. And I don't think he would do something like that. Um, yeah. and I think this kind of is an interesting transition to Jeff Luna, who you mentioned and is sort of the, the main character of the book, the villain. I don't know how you want to frame it, but you know, he's like, in some ways, he's the fall guy, right? He's the only one who was really ran out, you know, run out of the league. Um, except I guess Brandon Taubman also, he's on the ineligible list, I think, although that was separate from this science stealing stuff. He's been technically reinstated, but he hasn't come back in. Yeah. yeah and so Lou now is, his no longer works in baseball. I think he runs a soccer team or something. Multiple. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and he's, but it's so funny to read this story. Like he comes off as a very unpleasant person in the book. I think I can say that relatively fairly. Um, he does not seem like somebody who would like to work for. But as I was reading the book, I felt like this is such a familiar type of character in the culture, right? This guy who like comes from McKinsey, has this sort of like, you know, tech consulting background who likes the idea of like disrupting an, an, an industry or something. And if things were like two degrees different, right, if the, if the scandal hadn't been exposed, if, you know, people for some reason didn't care about the sign stealing, like you could see him being celebrated as like a hero or as like a genius. And like there's still people who think of him as this like maybe evil genius, but still like kind of this brilliant mastermind. And, you know, it comes back to this idea of like, you know, the title of your book, which is very good, I think, Winning Fixes Everything. It's like the team did have all this on-field success and still has, I mean, they've been in the ALCS now, was it seven years in a row or however many years in a row they've have all this on-field success, but like, you know, it, you know, it fixes everything for the fans and for some people, but like it didn't fix everything for Luna. It didn't fix everything for a lot of the people who worked in that organization who had miserable experiences and players who were kind of screwed over by the organization. And so it's, I'm curious, like what your perception of Luna is and what you think, like, why, why did he get, why does he come off the way he comes off, I guess? Yeah. And, you know, to your point that um, I, I forget the word you just used about uh, you wouldn't like he, he can be very charming. You know, it, uh -huh. it's not that every interaction with him is bad. It, 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 and this is where it, you know, it, there's shades of gray to all this and kind of a, a, a two faced nature to all of it. I mean, it, and it is the title of the book. Um you know, if you, I think if you were to look right now at, say, Amazon's, 
um, top selling baseball books or whatever. Go to some other website that, that ranks this. I don't know. There is another website that ranks it, but that's at least publicly available. Um, you know, most of them are going to be kind of the happy narratives. And, yeah. and this is what fans and people want. They, you know, sports teams are distractions. You want to love your, love your guys and uh, root, 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 all that stuff. And so a lot of the narratives, you know, get geared this way. And what you encounter with the Astros and what I encountered directly with the Astros um, is kind of the rare example where the bottom line result actually in the end is not the overpowering thing. They yeah. did win the World Series, right? They had it. They had they, they still have it. They have the title. And yet that is not where the conversation ends. It keeps going because in this case, in a, in a pretty extreme instance, the means to the end end up grabbing people's attention. What I think is unsettling for me, and I hope for anybody reading it, is this question of, well, what, you know, what if the cheating hadn't happened? Well, I have a whole book you can read that explains all the stuff that was going on. And there was a lot of stuff going on yeah. besides the cheating. And, you know, and you're right. And, and he would be celebrated. And, and there's this whole lineage from Moneyball to today of, of the, the worship of the innovator and particularly inside of baseball. And we see this outside of baseball as well. But the reality is that, that there was a lot of ugly stuff going on. And, and so the book, you know, it's still uncomfortable for me to think about is I had reported on the culture of the Astros back in 2014, my first season there, I did a, a big story on their industry perception. And I was really the first to kind of point out that these, these analytical darlings, analytics darlings, this progressive front office were, were really upsetting a lot of people. And you know, at this time, it was a tough thing to do to kind of, the Astros had a lot of friends in the media and, and it was a very simple us versus them period of time where if you didn't like the Astros, you didn't like math, you, you were a Luddite, you didn't possibly understand OBP or whatever, you know, you, you just, you were just left behind. You were some sort of rube. And, um, you know, I'm really, I'm proud. I broke the Astros cheating scandal. Yeah. I'm more proud of the fact that at a time when it would have been easy to just kind of just go with the flow of the crowd. You know, I, I reported what was really directly in front of me. Um, and in the end, this management culture that, you know, you could see the seeds of the problems a decade ago. I did. Others didn't. I did. Um, you know, it, it, you, you, there's a scenario where, where nobody cares. And I think that's often the case in sports. As long as the team wins, you really don't care how you get there. And I think that's really unsettling. I, and, and I hope people, if they do read the book or have read the book, really do chew on that. You know, this question of as long as you hold up the trophy at the end of the day, you don't care about what came before it. And, and I think that gives license for people to be treated really badly inside an industry. I think it gives license for teams to do things like not spend any money, not try to win for years and years. Uh, and, you know, it all kind of go, goes back to preying on the, the fanatic, the, the insane level of brand loyalty that sports fans have. And it, and it is leveraged. Um, baseball's a messy place. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it really is. And, and I, and I'm just, um, that's the reality. The reality of the Astros is even if this cheating scandal never happens, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of unsavory stuff going on that I would argue people should care about even if they're winning and they're still winning. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that is the real like, you know, confounding thing about this story is that like if you could somehow excise the, the cheating scandal, it's not like they're a model organization that like we would say, oh, this is such a some, something worth celebrating. It's like, no, they they are in an isolated sense. Yeah. If you, if you just look at the ability to build a roster. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, no. And I think I think it's interesting that you brought up how the sort of pro Astros narrative that predated this this scandal, because, you know, I mean, I think arguably worse than the sign scaling or maybe inarguably, in my opinion, like the tanking that went on from 2011 to 2014 when, the, you know, there was a, you know, a four year period where the team lost about 420 games or something crazy and was very clear about not trying to be competitive and was very clear about trying to exploit through, um, you know, build through the draft. But also, like, I think what something is underrated about the tanking is that it's it's often just about cost cutting. I mean, you have a line in your book where you say, like, sustainability, this term that gets thrown around by GMs all the time is just it's just a, kind of a euphemism for cost control. And you hear fans now all the time saying things like, teams should should focus on sustainability and cutting costs and tanking and like you have fans openly rooting for their team to lose because the Astros have created this model that other teams have tried to capture or, or you know repeat which is just like lose for a long long time and then maybe you'll win the World Series and it doesn't really work except in the Astros case but you know like what was it like to cover the team when they were so clearly terrible but yet they were like oh trust us guys like we're we're, we're we know what we're doing and it worked out, you know, as you say, on the field, but like they were, you know, it's reasonable to question a team that's losing 107 or whatever, you know, whatever they averaged over that four year period. Like it's reasonable to push back on them and, and say, this is not good. Fans should want more than this. Yeah. It, it you know, Jeff Luno's background um, includes a, a VP of marketing position. Uh, mm-hmm. This was at, at uh, petstore.com. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so. He is good at marketing and there is an element of marketing and selling your fans on, oh, this is actually good for you. And it, it's really a genius. What, what, what's the line from um, the Kaiser Sose movie? The, the greatest trick the devil ever played, but, you know, like. It's convincing the world he didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the greatest trick that, that, that Major League Baseball owners and executives ever pulled off was convincing people that they should buy and consume a crappy product for literally years on end. Yeah. Uh, with some perceived benefit to the fan. It's 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 nuts. And if you try to think about it in like other contexts, um, yeah, just you know, buy this laptop. It's a piece of junk. But in a few years, yeah, if you yeah, keep spending, we'll give you a better laptop. But you, you still have to keep paying. Yeah. And it's sort of this, this tragic thing. It's like one of the charming stories in sports is supposedly like the worst to first, you know, the like lovable underdog that turns it around. And you see that with the Orioles this year where like people were really excited about them. But it's like, well, when it's by some corporate design and like the plan is to stink for a while and then be good, it loses the charm of like, well, we're just a bunch of hapless losers who then stumble into like success. It's now like, oh, well, it's like a, you know, a very venture capital where like we're going to operate on a loss for a million years and then we're going to be amazon.com and we're going to take over the world and it's like well that's that's not really a rags to riches story that we want to celebrate i don't know no and look but you still have plenty of uh oh god dopey baseball writers who will latch on to it and look you know the fan and this is where fandom is so kind of difficult to kind of contend with in a way if 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 reality is is your interest um you know, the fans are still happy about it. They, you know, it's, it's, wow, they're finally winning again. And that is joy 
Yeah. Me and and I do and I do think there are some Orioles fans who you know, kind of do look at it a little differently and understand that this was a self-inflicted element to a degree. Right. I mean, one of the things you have in both Houston and Baltimore that can be ha- kind of hard to argue against, but you can't argue against it. it you, you, certainly there are arguments against it. Is oh, you know, things were so bad when we got here. This was, this was the only choice. It's the only thing we could possibly done for X, Y, Z reasons. It, it is factually not true. There are always, of course, alternatives, and those alternatives uh, almost always involve spending some level of money. Um, it, it doesn't have to be a huge amount of money, and 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 that really is like to your point. It, it, yes, it is always about cost savings. John Angelus didn't have to spend for years and years and years. Oh, he spent on the infrastructure. He spent nothing compared to payroll. <laughs> nothing. Uh, you know, you're hiring this person, that person, building a lab, whatever the hell you did. Yeah. Minuscule line items compared to, you know, actually getting uh, competent players. Um, and and I think I've tweeted this and I've um, – I should probably write a fuller thing about it at some point. The, the book touches on this too. I don't look at it as this great demonstration of skill. If you, right. if it takes you years and years to rebuild, um, it's convenient for you in, in, as a lead executive of, of keeping your job. And and certainly there are examples of executives who've tried this and failed. Oh, and yeah. So, you know, Mike Elias, Sigma Delta, the people in, in Baltimore deserve credit for at least pulling it off to the point that the team is now successful. The, you know, the Royals didn't do it. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of teams that just sucked tried to rebuild and not done it. So it is not a skillless endeavor, but I think the greatest demonstration of skill would be not forcing your fan base uh, to deal with years of losing. And it's just you know, at a certain point, it's like, okay, just make a schedule of where we are in your 10 year cycle. <laughs> yeah. and Tell me what teams. I should hit. It's just, it, it, there's something antithetical about it to, to kind of the existence of sport and competition. It's just, yeah, it it's almost feels boring. like the owners have kind of created this cartel where they all like pass the World Series trophy around to each other. Where like it's each, it's your turn, it's your competitive window. We're going to be terrible for the next eight years, and now you get a chance. Like, and I think you have this weird di- dynamic where, um, you know, I think I, I think it's interesting to compare the Astros to the Rangers, who they are currently playing in the LCS. Although listeners of the series is probably over by the time you're hearing this, but you know. The Rangers, like, they were bad or mediocre, and they were just like, let's sign Seeger and Marcus Simeon and DeGrom. And, like, some of those signings worked out. Some of them have not. DeGrom got hurt, but, like, they got good, you know? Like, they just went out, spent a bunch of money, and got good. And I think there's this idea that's true in baseball and, and in basketball also. Like, it's it's sort of infecting all professional sports that that being, like, the worst thing is to be pretty good right? That that's the worst thing in the world. Like you want to either be terrible or amazing. And it's like, I don't know. I think if I were a fan, I would rather be pretty good with the idea that like, we'll be pretty good. We'll be even better next year and better the year after that. Like this idea that you have to be awful for years on end in order to be good is not really true. And there's a lot of examples of teams that try to rebuild and it never works. And it like, you end up getting maybe one season of 90 wins and then you're back out to hundred lost seasons over and over again. And I don't know how, what kind of you know, spell owners have cast on fans to make them think this, but it is a real thing. Like you do hear from fans a lot who think like, Oh, I don't even care if, I, if we're all, if we're not going to win a hundred games, like just sell everyone, trade everyone, like cut the, you know, tear the team down to the studs. And it's like, I don't know. I kind of, kind of want to root for a team that's, that's good. I want to go to see a game that's competitive. Yeah. It, the, yeah. The, the, these sports teams and leagues are, are forgetting kind of fundamentally that this is a column I did write the other day. Cause Jerry DePoto had some comments that were just, kind of egregiously bad 
Yeah. It's not that the comments were bad. It's that the, it's, it's the mindset that they reflect. And even if he didn't make the comments, you know, the mindset is real of um, shooting for 54% win percentages. And, and it's just, you're, you are in an entertainment business. That is all sports is at the end of the day, sports are sports is, I don't know, singular, whatever. Um, and that is just forgotten when, you know, you, you trot out there. Oh, you know, we're in this for sustainability. No, you're in it to uh, sell a product that is exciting. And, yeah. and I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I'm not taking this position in some sort of interest of funneling more and more money to the players. You know, great. God bless. Go get as much as you can. But it really is about just what is baseball supposed to be? It's just it's just boring. Yeah. I, I'm not interested in your five year ROI hack. And that's all these are. It's cost savings and, um, it, yeah, look, it increases the odds based on the draft systems, the draft systems that are, of course, collectively bargained and that the owners want to see. It's, you know, it's not something that's handed down from God. Right. It is, oh, actually, we like this system because it allows us to step back, not spend for years and have some sort of justification to do it. But the reason you had this whole period leading to Luno's arrival in Houston and Jim Crane's arrival in Houston, really the last post Moneyball, the last 10 to 20 years of baseball writers leaning in to the executive as genius narrative. This is true in other sports. It is true outside of sports and it can, and and it's just inherently management friendly and that's okay. It's it's not that, it's not that, that, that you can never have a moment where you should, praise somebody for innovation or for decent management. It is that it was taken so far and people, writers, fans became so credulous to things that were really manifesting themselves in very ugly ways. Um, And you're still dealing with the residual of that. You are still dealing with fans who, uh, you know, this Moneyball mindset and the combination of the proliferation of fantasy sports of oh, I'm managing a roster, you know, everybody yeah. thinks they, they're, they're, they're a genius managing a roster because they can do it at home on Yahoo, whatever website they're playing on. Um, and yeah, it's, it was just, it's such a change. I think in the last 20 years, Yeah, um, you know, I wanted to ask about Moneyball since you brought it up. Um, you know, it's 20 years, I think exactly, or, you know, basically, you know, it was released in 2003 you know, or now in 2023 when your book comes out. Um, you know, your book is very clearly like a spiritual, you know, successor to Moneyball. You have people both in the sense that like there are people in the book keep referencing Moneyball, like they keep talking about it. Um, and also like there's the same kind of it's a similar narrative. And that's like a, how a front office is trying to to win on the cheap. Um, although obviously Houston's a bigger um, budget than, than Oakland has. But it is a very similar story. And it's so funny to compare the two because like in Moneyball, it's this very like triumphant story. It's this very like you know, say what you will about the success of it. It's like, there's, you know, they made a movie about it with Brad Pitt and it's like, you know, it's like, you know, underdogs in a, in a lab being like, how do we find the best players? And, you know, there's a, rom- a romance of finding like a diamond in the rough. And this is like so cold and calculated and corporate. And there, and it's so, as, as, you, as we keep saying, ambivalent. It's like, there's parts of this book that are kind of hopeful and, and exciting. Like, you know, when they, when they do kind of figure out a little like competitive edge, there's something cool about that. But it's also colored with like, you know, oh, we have your medical records and we think you're going to need Tommy John surgery. So we're going to pay you less money. And we've like gotten down to the exact dollar figure that we think your draft spot is worth. And it's like, it's just cold and cynical and like feels very 
depressing, honestly, at times to read. And I wonder like what you think, like, I think the, the pers- like we spent so many years as baseball fans after Moneyball arguing about what you talked about, like the Luddite stuff and like, are you okay with on-base percentage? Do you like these stats? And I kind of think now there's, it's re- recognizing that it wasn't ever really about like the stats and the like advanced analytics. It was about like identifying with owners and getting fans to recognize that like, like you have a great quote from Bill James in this book where he says like, if you're not trying to be cost effective, you're not really trying to win. I was like, God, that really just sort of sells out what the whole saber metric thing was about in the first place. It's like, it's not really about finding like cool stats. It's really about like, how can we save some money for the bosses? And I think that is, you know, waking people up to that is very important. And I'm curious if you feel like, is that something you see happening around baseball? Or what is like your perception of Moneyball at this point as as a somebody who's been covering the sport for all this time, but was a fan before that? Like, what is your, how do you look back on that? Yeah, I mean, look, Moneyball is a triumphant story, uh, and and try and this goes back to my earlier earlier point. Triumphant stories sell. Yeah, and and in this case, it was a great story. There's no question about it. The thing I wonder about, and I'm not sure what I fall on. I I, I think maybe my answer is yes. Is you know, should there have been a could could you reasonably have asked or thought that uh, Billy, not, not Billy Bean, but Michael Lewis could have foreseen and maybe even addressed what could or might happen if this is applied broadly. Yeah. Um, you know, that what would happen if a group of 30 billionaires, you know, looked around and said, I just want to win more cheaply than the next one. And, if, and by the way, of course it is correct that that, that is what people are always going to try. There is an inevitability to the arrival of a cost efficient mindset in baseball. It was probably going to happen at some point. Yeah. Um, Moneyball being the absolute tipping point, the line in the sand where everything changes subsequently. And, you know, they st- it's not just that they start applying these principles to the roster. They, they do it to the whole, whole swath of the organization. Um, but yes, for those of, who, who work in, in baseball or look to baseball to be different than the outside world, and there are very much arguments that it is different. It, it is a closed circuit of 30 teams with an antitrust exemption even if you didn't have the antitrust exemption it's a very different business uh than you know running a dry cleaners and worrying about you know being put out of business because another one's going to pop up it's just not a regular business um i do think people are much more aware now i see some of those same outlets that produced a lot of the front office people baseball prospectus namely um but fangress you know i I think the smartest most mathematically advanced writers are, are much more keenly aware of what is the impact of all this work now. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, it, that's the thing I am. I remain most proud of is, is that at a time where it was just not cool to ask those questions about what was the impact beyond wins and losses on people on the ground, you know, that I was, willing to do it and it look it, it was in hindsight kind of risky i mean the owner the general people didn't like me and and you know often good reporting and so it doesn't matter if you're in sports or not like somebody's not going to like you um but i do think there is a greater cognizance now i i i, I don't I, I don't think that there's any question it, it is it has changed not mm-hmm. totally and completely but, but yeah compared to 10 years ago certainly yeah i wanted to ask a little bit this is 
slightly off topic, but it, you know, like I, I think about the Atlanta Braves who had an amazing season before, you know, crapping the bed in the postseason, and their strategy of like, which you know, the, the Astros kind of had you know dabbled in this like locking guys up when they're you know pre arbitration. You know, like the the Braves have like their whole lineup signed to long term team friendly extensions more or less. You know, you know, to the, and they're like insane. Like you have Ronald Acuna who's getting paid like seventeen million dollars until he's thirty years old. Michael Harris who signed till twenty thirty two, and then you have something like the Ozzy Albies deal, which is like the most exploitive. And I think about that, and I was like. If I were in Atlanta and I were a Braves fan, I'd be super excited about that. I'd be like, I, we've got all these superstars locked up for a decade. But then you think about like, what should fans really want? And look, part of it is like, who's going to cry about somebody making $17 million a year? Like, you're doing fine, like yada, yada, yada. But it does undermine free agency. And these guys clearly are underpaid relative to what they could get on the open market. Even if we all recognize, yes, baseball players make a lot of money, maybe too much money, yada, yada, yada. Like, they are making less than their fair market value because of this weird system where players are not free agents and they can't negotiate better salaries until they're however many years old. And so I, you know, but part of me just keeps coming back to like, if I were a fan, I think I'd look past it, you know, like I would get over it real quick, you know, like, and I think that's an element of like, how do you get fans to not identify with the owners? Cause like you are rooting for laundry, you are rooting for the team. And is there any way to get fans to like, to be more broad-minded by that, you know, and does it matter? Like, is that ruining fans? You know, I guess, like, what is your thoughts on this sort of, like, question? Yeah, look, there's no question that that some of these players leave money on the table. Um, you know, wh whether there is a larger real-world impact. I, I One of the things I've enjoyed, I, I have to believe I guess I'm saying I've enjoyed it. I'm assuming it exists. I, I think it exists. I, I probably could come up with an example of this is that, you know, I, my coverage of in my coverage of uh, off the field business labor issues. I do think people who otherwise would not care about any of these things do do kind of get a little newly exposed to it. You know, somebody who, who in, their, in their right mind would never otherwise read about collective bargaining. And I, and, and by the way, I didn't come into baseball reporting ever expecting to go this route. It, it, it was simply, it was frankly a, a function of having covered the Astros. The only way you could, you could reasonably, I always had, I always had more interest off the field than most. And there are examples of this prior to me covering the Astros. Um, but you couldn't cover the Astros well and not be paying attention very directly to the front office, very directly to the CBA and, and by extension inherently to uh, labor. It, it just, it became the thing. It, yeah. And so, it, and it became very interesting to me. It just, at some point I realized I'm interested in this because it goes back to, well, how are people treated? And so what is, you know, what is the concern in baseball? It's really a proxy. It's really a proxy for, for people to kind of see the way that, um, labor issues can manifest themselves and, and, and to some degree are applicable to the outside world. It, it, it is this interesting um, representative or at least slightly representative slice of real life that's tied to something that people actually care about. And, you know, a lot of times people don't care about CBAs and other industries. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it, it ultimately comes down to what message do you want people to, you know, if, if, if you are somebody who is very concerned with uh, making sure that labor gets its fair share, then yeah, the, the, the question of, 
uh, what what an Atlanta Braves young player should sign for is going to be particularly meaningful to you. Um, and I, you know, but whether you can open people's eyes to it, I think to some degree you could, but fandom is, is, as we know, incredibly irrational. This is politics. It's, it's the same thing you see in politics. I, I mean, to a degree, I cover baseball politics. That's what I do. Um, and you know, and that's, that's true in several senses, but as far as like whether a, a, fan of a team is going to behave rationally kind of by definition you're thinking irrationally which can be very frustrating as somebody who in his work does you know not so much cater to kind of the entertainment complex right sports writing and i'm more about like oh here's what's actually going on here are the structures in place let's have an objective reasonable evaluation of them and then you have all the you know forgive me the crazy screaming at each other over it uh, it, it you know it's it's a little bang in your head against the wall sometimes. It's like, oh, you don't actually want to hear about reality. <laughs> you just, yeah. you just want your, you know, it doesn't matter, right? And, yeah. and so it is a weird space in a way. Um, it's very contradictory because it's like you, ha- you're. It's good that you have fans involved because, as you say, like it gets people invested in labor issues and, and negotiations that they would never otherwise care about. But it also brings a level of like craziness and and partiality and uh, fanaticism to to discussing it, which is probably not healthy. I did want to ask you about like your your role covering labor and how you see the sport, like, you know, not just covering it through the prism of the Astros, because I think like one question, you know, I wanted to ask is how how much of an outlier are the Astros or were the Astros? I mean, obviously, you didn't cover every team in as much detail as you covered Houston. But, you know, now with you as you as you cover like the the national like labor issues in baseball, like have those practice has been adopted what sets houston apart like can can you can you say that like do you do you have a good sense of where like the you know because i think you know you you talked about the inevitability of it the way like when things are adopted by oakland it's only a matter of time before everyone around the league takes the successful things from from successful franchises and so are you know but obviously there's some specific things that you, know, you document in this book about houston that are like well maybe we won't take that and and so i wonder like have have these things just become part of the game now? I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, you're not going to um, remove the efficiency mindset. You might find some people who start to value simply just assign values differently um, mm-hmm. and, and operate a little differently. Maybe are more willing to engage in uh, in risk for the service of you are an entertainment business and an entertainment industry. Um, you know, one of the, one of the great lessons for me uh, of of this book and of covering the team, you don't re- you on the outside, and I'm including myself in this for really 29 other teams in a way. Um, you don't know what's going on inside these franchises, and, and to really understand how a team is run, to understand even just a clubhouse dynamic, it it takes a lot of work. You know, you yeah. reporters try hard, but you're only getting a slice and a sliver. There's, there's a lot that never makes it to the public, to the press. Um, and that's always going to be the case. But, you know, to kind of sit there and think, you know, exactly what well, this team is savory. This team is unsavory. Nobody really knows it, 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 it to really be able to confidently say, like, for example, people last year when the Astros made the World Series. Well, all right. You know, uh, how do you look at the franchise now? My answer would be give me two or three years to <laughs> the same level of X, you know, to go make, take a deep dive. 
And then I could confidently tell you whether they fix their culture issues or not. Yeah. Um, and because the whole point of the book is it, it's, it's not the result can be there. You can have a whole slew of problems um, in general. Yeah. A lot of these teams um, have adopted a lot of the same mindset. I think there is an extremity to a lot of what the Astros are doing. I do think some teams are, um, you know, Luno is a very unique personality. Jim Crane is a very unique personality. Um, and kind of the combination of the two of them creates something pretty toxic. And there are, there are some franchises that are, that are a little more concerned of concerned with uh, not upsetting the apple cart to, to the point it is detrimental Um you know, change is hard. You got to break some eggs, make the omelet, all that stuff. Right? You, you can live by all those platitudes. Um, w- w- the Astros kind of pushed the envelope in so many ways and with so little regard uh, for how far they pushed the envelope, you know, it comes back to bite them. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other teams that have done some unsavory things. There are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I just think, I think when we talk about like business cultures, like this, it's often assumed that the unsavory things like lead to the success. You know, it's like, you know, post hoc ergo prop hoc, where it's like, oh, well, the Astros had all this success and these guys were jerks. So therefore, the like way to get success is to be a jerk. But like and like you definitely see that in reports about like Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and like any celebrated dipshit is like, oh, well, this guy yells a lot. And that's the, that's the thing we should take from this. And I think what's so interesting about this narrative is you really see like it was not a straight line. You know, it was even though like they've had such, you know, on the field, they really are like just the picture of success. Like they've other than the covid year, you know, they've had this uninterrupted stretch of of, of really good seasons. And they've been able to replace players like Carlos Correa with Jeremy Pena. And it's just very enviable as a fan. But it's not like it was not a bumpy ride. And it's also not like all the all the risks they took paid off. I mean, you know, there's all these examples of just like, well, they tried something and it totally didn't work or like it was, it, it just would seem very stupid. And like, it just made a bunch of people mad. And like, you know, even the thing like the, you know, just something as simple as the, what's his name, not using the right email password and getting hacked by the card, you know, like just little things. And it's like, well, sometimes you're, sometimes people are seem like idiots because they're crazy. Sometimes they're just, people are just idiots. Like sometimes people just do stupid stuff. No, and- the, 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 the ends and, and certainly this has often been, you know, I associate this line of thinking with the Astros and Luna, the ends justify the means. Um, you know, you're not going to create change without change is hard. Sigma Dell would always say change is hard. You did not have to, the Astros did not have to operate um, to be blunt as jerks the way they did to be good there. Now, could they, do they have, could they, do you have to be a little jerky at points? Maybe, but but I think we can look at a spectrum of jerkiness, yeah, uh, and and say you know what you didn't have to do this this and this you could have right. done better here here and here you didn't have to treat people as callously as aggressively you didn't have to create quite the same culture you did you can still be an agent of change, um, and not do what the Astros did and and I do I do think that is a fallacy that people fall into. Of well, how else are you going to do it? Oh no, you you could very specifically imagine other ways you could do it. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it, it's an easy easy crutch uh, for people to lean on. Yeah, I, I did want to just yeah, like there's people in the story. I mean, like, we focused on Lunau and Jim Crane and people like that. But there are people who come off very sympathetically in this book who kind of get into it because they're just like fans, you know, or they're writing on Baseball Prospectus or something, and they're just like, 
you know, I, I think I, I figured something out about baseball and that's really cool. And then they kind of get involved from the owner's side and it kind of just, you know, not to, not to be all on my soapbox, but the whole reason I do this podcast and this newsletter is like to frame, you know, like these, the, the relationship between owners and, and workers and, and owners and players is inherently adversarial and exploitive. Like there's just no way around that. Like you can be a good person or a dipshit on the wrong side and it's just you're trying to save money you're trying it's just like that's the nature of the of the beast um and yeah like do you feel like i mean as, as we get kind of get towards wrapping up here like yeah so has this changed the way you view baseball as like either both like the specifics of the reporting on this book but the general reporting you've done through since the lockout and and in the, the collective bargaining stuff has it kind of changed the way you think of the game in any like, not to like make you put a ribbon on it and wrap things up into a neat little lesson, but just generally like how, how has it altered the way you, you view the sport? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It has altered the way I view the sport. You know, the, 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 the 10 year period covering, um, that the book covers, you know, my time covering the Astros, my reporting subsequently with the lockout, everything, um, I've kind of seen and done in, in, in the time I've been in baseball, um, or covered baseball. You know, I, I tell people sometimes in my current job that I could end basically every story with it's about money um, <laughs> and, and like truly. And, and that can be frustrating for me. I, there are times I find it to be really kind of intellectually uninteresting um, when when it's always the same answer and you can kind of get to the bottom of why a certain thing is happening this way. There are still a lot of interesting things to learn about in terms of uh, the off the field workings in baseball. Uh, and that's been actually kind of the fun of my job is like getting in on it, you know, I'm learning constantly and I hope somebody, you know, if I write something on the antitrust exemption, the point, you know, it's, it's me going, well, I don't know enough about that. Right. Somebody educate me. And then hopefully somebody else gets educated along with me. Um, I, I think there are two types of reporters in the world. Those who think they know everything and those who are, who are really keenly aware they don't. And I, and I consider myself one of the latter. Uh, you know, I really do know that there's a lot I don't know. And, and the fun of it is, is asking questions about it. Um, but yeah, there's no question that covering labor in baseball, I, the red pill is the one that shows you truth and reality in the matrix, right? Yeah. Yes. The blue pill would have sent him back to his happy little life. Yeah. You know, I, I took the red pill and I, and I can't go back. And I, and I think, and what's interesting is that there are writers and reporters who kind of know that all this stuff is going on, but like, they just love baseball. They just want to write about the green grass and the hot dogs. And, and it used to, it still can get me a little riled up. You know, a little bit more as I get older, I understand, you know what, to each their own. You, you can't control what other people are thinking or doing. And if that's what makes them happy, if that's what their interest is, whatever, you know, as one of as one of the uh, spokespeople at, at Major League Baseball's uh, commissioner's office often says, go with God. You know, it's <laughs> that's fine. It's just not for me. I, I can't really look away from it. Um, and so to some degree, I took something I love and went behind the curtain and um, at times find it miserably cynical and depressing. Uh -huh. um, I'm still here. I'm still smiling usually. And, uh, you know, there's still things to learn. But, yeah, it's it is a business. Go read Lords of the Realm, if, you know, after if, if you haven't read. I know you've read it, but it, but it, it, it's. It's ugly, man. It, 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 it is, it's, it, there's a lot of ugliness behind that, that beautiful game and, and the green grass and the hot dogs. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's as good a place to end on. I totally agree. I mean, I think that, um, 
you know, I might, I might go a little bit more, uh, more hardcore, but I would just say that, yeah. And I, but I do want to say that, yeah, like it doesn't have to ruin the game. Like it, it, you know, it can be, you know, you can have the joy of the on-field experience while also realizing that behind the scenes are some, some ugly stuff. Um, and you can get rid of the ugly stuff and still preserve the game if you, you know, you embrace socialism. Um, but um, it's just, just, just a little, little note I'll, to I'll end pass on. It on to Rob Manfred. And, uh... <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you for joining me, Evan. Um, if you have not already read Winning Fixes Everything, go pick it up. It is a very enjoyable read, despite, you know, being about some, some tough things. Uh, it is a great book. Um, Thank you for for joining. If you also I should just say, if you uh, don't follow Evan on various social media sites or read his writing at the Athletic, you should do so. Um, and yeah, enjoy the World Series, which is starting soon. Uh, thank you, Evan. Thanks, John. Nothing like standing on the field of the World Series trying to find Tony Clark and Rob Manfred to ask about the latest controversial labor issues. <laughs>